So we are at the end of a series called Dear Westlight. Basically, this is what, uh, you know, we, the pastors, we, we have things that we want to say, but sometimes they don't fit neatly into a sermon series. And so this is where we dump it all. So this is, uh, we used to do this before the pandemic, and now uh, we're back to doing this. So 2022, Dear Westlight. Um, the first week, um, I talked about eschatology. Last week, Pastor Stan, he talked about uh, Emmanuel journaling, which I never heard of until he talked about it, and very helpful. And today, uh, I want to talk about something that's been heavy on my heart. And yeah, it is Christmas season. This has very little to do with Christmas. And as a matter of fact, if, you're, if you don't know me, you know, you know me, like, if you know me, you know that I'm pretty optimistic about a lot of things. Today, I'm going to sound like I'm scolding you, but it's not to you, okay? So it's, it's just the church in general. So uh, today, let's start with this question, which is this. What is the church? What is the church? If somebody who's never heard of church showed up in this setting today or any other church this morning, and we were to ask them the question, what is the church? They will look around, they'll listen to the message, they'll greet the people, they get to know everybody, and then they'll come up with a conclusion, oh, this is what church must be. And for me, personally speaking, um, I started going to church when I was an, well, the first time I was invited, I went to the VBS in elementary school, but when I really started attending church was in high school. Uh, it was between my 11th and 12th grade year, and um, you know, I came in with a clean slate, like I'm not exactly sure what church is, but I heard you know, reputations and stories of what church is. Um, and so I had some lens to view the church, but you know, really, I didn't really know much about the church. And my first impression was, oh, the church must be a holy club. Like it's a club of people who know how to behave well, or, right? But then I remember uh, as I started going to church and then eventually I visited other churches and there was like one church that was like an amazing worship set. They had like a crazy band and the fog machine and the laser lights shooting pew, 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 right? And, and I thought, oh, church is like a concert. It must be a concert, right? Or I've been to churches or, you know, I've watched churches online where the pastor's preaching like, oh, this guy knows his stuff. Man, oh, church is like a lecture hall. It must be like a school. And so for a long time, I've been trying to figure out, well, what is church? Like, what is the purpose of church? I mean, is this for something? Or is it like, is the church, does the church exist for Christians? Does it exist for people who are not Christians? Like, who does this church exist for? And just like any organization in this world, every organization has to have a reason, a reason for existing, right? And usually to define what the reason for existence is, is that you have to define two things. You have to define the problem and a solution, okay? So, um, People are not educated. Hey, I know, let's create a solution called the public school, right? Or hey, um, kids have nothing to do after school. Parents are working, what should we do? Solution, oh, let's create an after school program. So you see how that works? There's a problem and then there's a solution. And from my perspective in high school, going to church for the first time, I was able to experience the solution and I was trying to figure out what the problem was. So if you view church as a place where people just sing songs, you have to say, well, okay, what, was the, what is this solution actually solving? Oh, is it because there's a group of people who needed a place to sing songs about Jesus, so we created this thing called church? Or is it, like if you see the church as a lecture hall, like you're like, oh, well, you know, people need to learn about Jesus, that's, this is a solution, right? So, so the, the problem must have been people didn't know much about God, and that's why the solution is we created a church that's like a lecture hall. 
right? So we have to figure out what the problem and the solution is. And a lot of times, when we find out what the problem is, right, then we can see like, oh, we can actually grade the thing that we're actually a part of. We can say, well, is the church really accomplishing solving the problem that was originally given to us, that we inherited? So that's what I wanna do today. I wanna share with you guys this journey of what the problem is and, why the ch and how the, is the church solving that problem. And with that metric, with those lenses, we should be able to look at our church and see, well, are we actually doing a good job of solving that problem? Or have we completely missed the mark? Okay, and like I said, this is not an indictment or you know, a lecture on our church. I'm just talking about churches in general, okay? But you are free to grade us, you know, right? Um, that's, that's your, you could do that if you want. Okay, so first, let's start with the problem. Now, interesting enough, the problem of the the problem of this world that the church is trying to solve is not something, if you guys know church started 2,000 years ago, it's not a problem that popped up 2,000 years ago. It's actually a problem that's started with when humanity popped up in this world. It's a very, very old problem. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna walk us through scripture from Genesis, and we're gonna go through Exodus, and through those two books, we're gonna be able to define what the problem is, okay? so. This is how the story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created all these really cool things by speaking it, like let there be light, you know, let there be land, right? He does that for five days, and on the sixth day, he creates animals that do all this land, and then he creates humanity, people, and when he does that, he doesn't just speak it, he actually takes the time to mold the dirt, the dust of the ground, and he breathes his spirit into it, and that's supposed to be symbolic of something, and this is what that verse says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the word image right here is a really interesting word. This is a Hebrew word that could also be translated as statue. Like God is looking for, like I need a representation of me on this earth that I just created. Okay, and that is the image. I'm going to take my image and I'm going to put it in this dirt, pile of dirt, and now we have a walking, living statue. What is the purpose of the statue? What is the purpose of these human beings? Why do they exist? So that, next verse, they may rule over the fish and the sea, uh, in the sea and the birds in the sky. And by the way, the word rule over does not mean like you sit on a comfortable throne telling like, okay, fish, start singing like you did in The Little Mermaid. You know, like you, it's, that's not what rule over means here. The implication of the word rule over right here in the Hebrew means to care for to oversee, to be responsible for. Okay, so he says, I'm gonna create humanity because humanity, your job, is to take care of, nurture, grow this thing that I already created for you, right? What does that include? Well, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, so far what we're discovering is that there's an interesting link here. There's God who created his image in the humanity, and humanity's job is to take care of creation. So there's this three-part link. There's three main actors so far in this story. Okay, so uh, let's keep reading. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And this is what Jews, Hebrews, later on looked back and said, oh, this is the perfect definition of the word Paradise. This, is, this must be paradise, where there's God, humanity, and creation, and they all have a unique relationship to each other. And this word paradise eventually got replaced by this word, shalom. Shalom 
as you guys probably know, means peace, okay? But the word shalom, peace, in the Hebrew has a lot deeper meaning than what we use as the word as peace. Like in, in America and in English, the word peace means there's no war, right? Shalom in Hebrew doesn't just mean no war or absence of chaos. It means that everything is perfect as it's supposed to be, as it was meant to be. So shalom to these people means this, that humanity is a reflection of God. So there's God, there's humanity. He puts his image into humanity, and now humanity is a perfect reflection of God. If anybody were to look at humanity, like some you know, foreign I don't know, a spaceship comes in and says, oh, what is God like, right? They'll look at humanity and say, oh, look at the way they care for each other. Look at the way they love each other. Look at the way they're creative. Are you saying that your God is also creative, right? So when you look at humanity, you get an idea, a really good reflection of who God is. But that's not the only part of shalom. Another part of shalom is this, that creation is a reflection of humanity. God takes his image, places it in humanity. Humanity creates, keeps, continues to create in creation, and now we have this perfect ecosystem. So here's a little diagram of that. So God takes his image, puts it in humanity, but humanity also, whenever he does something, he or she does something, it reflects the image of God, right? So there's this back and forth thing going on here, and humanity pours into creation, and if creation is broken, it's a reflection of how humanity didn't do his job right, right? And if humanity didn't do his job right, that's because that's the image of God that failed inside of humanity. So there's this continual thing, okay? God cares for humanity. Humanity cares for creation. That's pretty, right? Oh, by the way, another interesting thing is that God is spirit, right? He doesn't have a physical body. Creation is all physical, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they describe that humanity occupies this very unique space where we're both spirit and physical. This is why humanity is so important to God because we are the middle people. We are the, what's the word? Mediators between creation and God. So humanity is a very, is a very important thing, but here's the thing, guys. If you move on to chapter three, you discover that humanity rebels against God. It says, we don't wanna be a reflection of you anymore. We think we could do your job better than you do your job. We think we're better at being God than you are being at God. And so they push back on God and says, no, we are gonna run this thing in the way that we think we should run it. You told us what is good in the first seven days of creation. Well, we are now gonna define for ourselves what we think is good. So this is a creation story. And then a curse comes upon humanity, right? And then this is how they describe what happened. This is Genesis chapter three, verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them, we're talking about Adam and Eve, were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next verse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden and uh, in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among trees of the garden. And then God asks a very interesting question. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Which is a weird question considering that God can see all things. It's like I created two people and I can't seem to find them. You know, like it's kind of weird. Is God really playing hide and seek here? Or what's really going on? When God looks at creation and sees Adam and Eve hiding from each other, they put clothes on to hide from each other. And now they're hiding from God. God is like, what happened to you guys? Like, where are you? It's this disconnect. Right, like 
Up until now, there was this flow of God to humanity to creation, and now humanity is like, we don't want to be connected to you anymore. We feel shame. We don't want to be around you. So looking, going back to this, di this diagram right here, what happened here is this. Next slide. Humanity cut this off right here, and because of that, God can't pour everything that he is into humanity anymore. And because this is cut off, next slide, this gets cut off. So what is chapter three of Genesis trying to tell us? Well, there's a lot of things he's trying to tell us, okay? But there's one thing that I wanna point out of all the things that the author is trying to tell us. The first thing is this, that sin is an individual issue. Eve took the fruit. She ate of the fruit. She disobeyed God. Adam took the fruit from Eve. He disobeyed God. He ate it, right? But that's not how the story ends because there's a second part to this observation, which is that the nature of sin is to always spread into society, always. Start from Eve, went to Adam. From Adam, it goes to the next generation and from the generation after that, and it spreads. And, and by the way, because humanity played an important role in being between God and humanity, God and creation, I'm sorry, right? When humanity messes up, creation starts to mess up because again, sin doesn't stay in one place, it always spreads. And so, uh, like the very next story, if you, if you don't know, Genesis chapter four, Adam and Eve have kids, Abel and Cain. Cain sins, and after that, he, well, he kills his brother, and then after that, there's this long genealogy. Why do they put a genealogy there in the Bible? Because you know, people just wanna know what, whose kid is who, right, and how long they live, no. They're trying to demonstrate for us that Cain's sin passed on from generation to generation to generation. It just spreads. Sin doesn't stay in one place. It always seeks to spread. Abraham, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham was blessed by God to bring heaven on earth to the people around him. But instead, his sin takes one curse and spreads it to all of Egypt. He goes into Egypt and he's like, hey, I want you to meet my wife, sister Sarah because he was afraid that Pharaoh would take his wife from him. So he lies and then God brings a curse upon all of Egypt. One person's sin is spreading to all of society, curses the entire nation. Another story, like there's Rebecca whose who sin spreads to the whole family. We have generation after generation. It's not a coincidence that the very last sin in the book of Genesis was his Joseph. Uh, his, you know, like lying about like, hey, I'm not Joseph, you know, I'm, I'm actually Pharaoh's number two, right? Deceiving is the very same sin as the first one, which the serpent is trying to deceive humanity. Like, sin spreads and it continues on. That's the point that Genesis is trying to make, right? And then we move into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a culmination of all this. It's like the people in Exodus were wondering, hey, we are slaves, how did this happen? And the author of Exodus is trying to explain to us how it all happened. This is how he explains it. There was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing to, nothing, come to power in Egypt. Quick backstory. There's a guy named Joseph who is an Israelite. He's a Jew, okay? And what happened was he was sold into slavery but somehow ended up in Egypt and he worked up the rank and now he's number two of Egypt. He's like a really powerful guy. Finds out that back at home, there's a big famine. So he invites all his family, the entire nation, to live in Egypt with him because there wasn't a famine. There's like a, a lot of food there. And so the Pharaoh at the time had favor upon the Israelites living in Egypt. But that Pharaoh died and now we have a new Pharaoh and that Pharaoh doesn't know who Joseph is. So 
This Pharaoh's like, I'm the new king. Who are these people? What are they doing here? So this is how he reacts to that. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. When I look outside, I notice that there's a lot of Jews there. Huh. Next verse. So what does he do about this? Come. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if, the biggest if in the book of Exodus, if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Hey, you know, if people come into our nation and they invade us, you know what they're going to do? These Jews, they're going to join them and they're going to overtake our land. We can't have that happening. Now, is that really going to happen? Probably not. Because these Jews are very thankful that they're actually here eating their food, right? So they probably won't do that. But this Pharaoh is very insecure. He's like, oh man, this is bad. You know? So he's thinking about all these possibilities of what could happen. And he's being very insecure. And then, next verse. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now they're forced to build things, not for themselves, but for somebody who's already rich, and now the rich is getting richer and the poor is getting poorer. How did this happen? One man's insecurity, one man's sin, has led to an entire race that's under slavery. See how sin spreads? But that's not all. It spreads in other ways too. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians? Wait, I thought it was a Pharaoh thing. No, 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 no. Now, it's not just Pharaoh. It's also the Egyptians. They adopted Pharaoh's narrative. So now the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. So do you see how it's not just spreading in one aspect systemically, but also to the people, right? It went from Pharaoh to the Egyptians, and now the Egyptians are adopting Pharaoh's narrative that, hey, we could be under attack if we don't put them under slavery, right? So it's spreading. Next verse. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The sin of insecurity of Pharaoh, the sin of one person, has led to a whole kingdom of slavery. This is a pattern that we've seen from the book of Genesis from the very beginning all the way to the end of the Bible where one person said sin just spreads. The point that they're trying to make here is this. Egypt is an image of what happens when sin spreads, given power, and systematized. And one of my Old Testament professors used to tell me this. Kasi, if you figure out the story of Egypt, then you know the entire Old Testament because that's how it is. This happens with Babylon. This happens with the Assyrians. This happens with the Greeks. It happens with the Persians. It happens with the Romans into the New Testament, right? So it's like, you're gonna see this over happen over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, a part of the Old Testament story is that the Israelites, the Jews eventually become the people who are in power. And, and all these things are given a, a, a title and all these things is called empire. Sin is always pushing its way to become an empire. Always. And the thing that takes one person's sin and make, it becomes an empire, the thing that allows it to do that, well, it's a fuel called power, money, influence, platform. If you take one person's insecurity, 
one person's sin, and you say, hey, let's create a whole system around it to protect it. Let's, let's make it more comfortable. Let's do this. Let's, it, the more it grows, the more it becomes an empire, and it devours, and it spreads, not just laterally, but it also spreads generationally, vertically, right? So the problem is that sin is an individual issue and is always becoming Right? It's always moving towards, it's always pushing to become a systemic issue. Sin is both individual and also systemic. So you probably heard preachers talk about, repent your sin, right? But you also hear churches talk about social justice. Well, which is it? The answer is yes, <laughs> it's both, right? We need both. But here's the bigger issue of this story. You see, there's all these slaves in Egypt, and you would think that what they want to do is be set free. And so there's all these babies that are being born into this slavery system. And now their imaginations, especially the slaves, their imaginations are being hijacked by the empire. So these people, when they are slaves, and they're dreaming of a day that they could be set free, they're not thinking, one day I want to be set free so that I can put all this slavery stuff behind me. That's not what they're dreaming anymore. What they're dreaming is, I want to be set free from the slavery stuff one day so that I can one day own slaves of my own. It's kind of like saying, I hate the corporate world. I can't wait until I'm not poor anymore. And then finally, you make enough money to get out of that poor, you know, the poverty. And now you want to be the CEO of a corporate that you used to loathe. This is exactly what's happened. This becomes a cycle. And every single person in the system is now part of this body. It's like an organism to sustain itself. So that is the problem. We just talked about the problem, right? The Bible tells us in the first two books of the Bible what the problem is. And it's just a repetition of that through the rest of the Bible, right? And the biggest problem of this is not just the system, the empire, and the personal sin. It's the effects of it. When we sin, what we're really doing is we're violating the image of God in other people. When you create slaves, you're basically saying, I refuse to look at you and see the image of God in you. I see just labor work. All I see is a number, right? When you ever sin takes its root and becomes a system, we start devaluing the image of God in humanity. So sin is like an organism that keeps devouring, and the people who are born in it want to keep it alive even though we don't like it. That's the problem that this world is in. And the root of that is sin. So now let's talk about the solution. And believe it or not, the church is not the solution to this problem. The solution to this problem predates the church by thousands of years, okay? So let's go back to the book of Exodus, okay? In this broken system, God raises a man named Moses. Moses is this guy who is an Israelite but is a prince of Egypt. And he notices the empire that he's a part of. As a matter of fact, he's going for a walk and he sees one of his fellow Jews being whipped and he says, no, that can't happen, but that's part of empire. You have to make sure there's a power structure, right? So he decides to murder the, the Egyptian guard who's, who's messing with one of his fellow Jews. And to hide that, he decides to cover it up. up he dig a hole and, and, and bury him in sand. And because he felt so bad at what he did, he takes off and runs into the middle of the desert. Right? He's like, I don't like this empire. I'm going to run away from it. And while he's away, he discovers this burning bush Right? And he finds a community out there. And through that, he learns more and more about what he ought to do about the system, about the sin, this empire. And basically, he's like, 
Moses, you got to go back to Egypt. You got to set these slaves free, and not just set them free, but reteach them how to be a community. Because right now, their imaginations are hijacked by this empire. Can you do that? And Moses is like, I don't know what to do. And this is the instruction that God gives Moses. This is very important, okay? This is, a lot of times we read through this and we don't really notice it. We don't stop. Very important information here. When the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. What do you want me to do, God? Just repeat what I'm about to say. Wait, you want me to be your lips, your tongue, your, your mouth? You want me to be your mouthpiece, basically. Yes. Well, why don't you speak yourself? I mean, you have a very deep James Earl Jones voice. Why don't you just say it yourself, right? Or, you know, why don't you write something on the wall with blood or something? Like, that would work. It probably works maybe later, maybe like in the book of Daniel. But, like, like why don't you just do something that's, like, me? Really? me? Like, you want me to say what? You know, I don't think he's going to listen to me. Really? Next verse. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? It's like, it doesn't matter if he listens to you or not. All you got to do is listen to what I say and be my mouthpiece. So I am your mouthpiece. Yes, just be my mouthpiece. Just say what I'm about to tell you and I'll take care of the rest. Really? It's like, yeah, just, just be my mouthpiece. You don't want me to be your legs or your feet, your, your arm. No, no, just my mouthpiece. Just, okay, right? But Moses is still feeling kind of unsure. It's like, okay, you just want, like, please tell me what the next few steps are so I know I'm not just doing this in a vacuum. And then God reveals to Moses what God really wants. This is a really important part. Next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Very interesting. Let's read the next verse. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Huh. So, God, you can speak to Pharaoh with that deep voice. You could write something on the wall with blood. You can do all these things, but you're choosing to use me with faltering lips to go to Pharaoh and say whatever you tell me to say? Yeah. I choose to use people to do my work. I could do it myself, I could probably be more efficient, but I choose to use, why, why? Because God is looking for a body. He said, I made you like God to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh looks at you, Moses, he's gonna say, oh wow, is that what God is like? Where have we heard this language before? In Genesis chapter one and two. The original purpose of God and humanity is that humanity will reflect the image of God. Whenever somebody looks at humanity, they'll say, oh, is that what God is like, right? He's like, when people look at you, Moses, when you say the words I'm about to tell you to say, people are gonna look at, listen to what you say and say, oh my goodness, you're like God. You are speaking on behalf of God. You are acting as God to Pharaoh. What is God trying to do here? Well, God chose to show up to Pharaoh in the form of a human being because that was his original intention of creation. God originally wanted humanity to be a reflection of God and he said, there's no better time than now to do that. I want you to be the mouthpiece of God. Can you do it, Moses? So let's look at this diagram, okay? So we have God, okay? 
And God wants to take his image and place it into Moses. And when Moses speaks, it reflects God, right? This is what we saw originally in creation, right? And Moses, I want you to also take care of the Israelites. You're gonna set them free. This is very similar to the model that God created at creation, right? This is exactly what he wants for humanity. He says, before the sin thing entered and messed everything up, this was my original intention, but this model here has a problem. You know what the problem with this model is? Moses can't be God all the time. He can't reflect God's image perfectly because God is infinite and Moses is this one little tiny little guy, right? Like there's no way that Moses can be an accurate depiction of who God is. One human being is not enough to embody the image of God. I mean, in creation, it says he created man and woman and he set them as the image of God, right? So there's no way that Moses could do it by himself. So the story moves on. Moses obeys God, goes into Egypt and says, let my people go. He is the mouthpiece of God, just one aspect of the body that God really wants, right? And he pulls the people out after the 10 plagues. And as they're going to the desert, God notices yeah, Moses, if you act as God at this point, you are gonna burn out. You're not perfect, you're, you're completely finite, right? There's no way that you could do this on your own. So, as Moses led his people, the Israelites and some other Egyptians, out, out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where he first encountered God, God's like, Moses, come up here. I, I need to talk to you. So Moses goes up the mountain and this is that scene right here. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said this. This is important. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Here's, again, you are the mouthpiece. I want you to say what I'm about to tell them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Eagles' wings is this image um, that ancient Jews, even today, they noticed that eagles would do anything for their eaglets, for their babies, for their chicks, right? And when there's a storm, eagles are able to soar above the storm. Like, they're very resilient beings that could take care of their babies. He's like, when you look at the way that I just pulled you out of Egypt, remind the Israelites that, like, I was like an eagle, a mother eagle taking care of the eaglets. Let's keep going. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Like you have no doubt now that I really, really care about you guys. For generations were treated as slaves and now I'm here to show you what value you, you actually have. And then, this is what he says, this is very important. Although the whole earth is mine, so it's not like I need anything from you guys, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God is saying. Now that I've rescued you, there's something I need from you. Actually, better yet, not I need something from you. There's something I want, you, it's not something I want you to do. It's that it's, there's something I need you to become. I want you to become someone. And he lists two things. The first thing he said is priest. What is a priest? A priest is someone who represents God. When you look at a priest and the way that they dress and the way they behave, the way that they treat each other, they are a reflection of the God that they worship. This is exactly, again, the creation story. God took his image and placed it in a human being, right? And so every time we look at the human being, it reflects God. Again, we've seen this before. He's just using different language to say the same thing, okay? So he's saying, before it was Moses. Moses was my representation. Now I'm looking at the thousands of you 
that are rescued from Egypt, I want all y'all, like that's the word, y'all. When the word you is used in the Bible, it's actually referring to everybody. So y'all, like all you guys, I want you guys to be collectively my priest. We can't let one person, Moses, do this because that will burn them out. We need everybody here to become God's body. And the second thing he said is I want you to be a holy nation. Holy nation, what does that mean? Holy means set apart, different, right? Right now the world is broken. Everybody's grabbing at power. They're swayed by fear, right? They're doing everything for survival. I want you to live in abundance. I want you to live as if like that everything is taken care of, that, that God, the most powerful being in the world, has your back. I want you to live differently than the nations around you. So, diagram time, just so you know what's going on. Originally, it was God who poured into Moses, who poured into the Israelites. And the Israelites reflected Moses' leadership, and Moses, he reflected who God was, right? What he's asking people to do now at, the, at Mount Sinai is this. He says, God is gonna be pouring into the Israelites now. The Israelites are going to be now the image of God. And because of that, they will be pouring into the enemies, the empire. You are gonna be setting people free from the system that's destroying humanity. Notice how Israelites here, Israelites, they kind of moved up in rank, right? And this is the story of the Old Testament. How well will the Israelites, these Jews, do in reflecting God's image to the world, to the empire? Answer, yeah, not so good. <laughs> As a matter of fact, halfway through the Old Testament, we discover that the same thing that Adam and Eve did happens to the Israelites. They look at God and say, you know what? I think we could do a better job at running this show better than you, God, so we're gonna do what we think is right and say what you think is right. And eventually the Israelites rise to power and they own chariots and horses and spears and swords and slaves. As they're building a temple for God, they're using slave labor. Like, right, that's like irony. So it's like, yeah, you totally missed the point, guys. So God's like, okay, we're gonna do this whole thing over again. Let's restart, reset button, you know? And that's where we jump into the New Testament. So God attempts at this model again, because God, stubborn at times. Okay, so this is what he does. So in the New Testament, God says, okay, I need a perfect image representation of myself. So what does he do? He sends his own son, Jesus. The best image, the true image of God here in the flesh. God is looking for a body. He gave Jesus a body. He's like, okay, me in flesh. And Jesus even says, what I teach you, if you wanna get to know God, get to know me. I and the Father are the same. We are one. And what does Jesus do? He lives out a life that God intended humanity to live. And when he does that, he says, now I have to leave, so I'm gonna pass this on to the church. So a church is a representation of Jesus. Jesus is a representation of the Father. You see how that works? Okay. Then he switches it up a bit. In the book of Acts, we discover God, right, because Jesus had to go, he pours into the church, okay, and the church is now ministering to the world. Okay, so God, throughout history, throughout history, next slide, God has been looking for a body to restore shalom in this world. And he looks at the church and says, you are that body I've been looking for. 
In other words, the church's primary function is to reflect God's image to the world. You know, when I go to church, and if I didn't know what the problem was, but I just know what the solution is, I walked into church, and I see this grand concert. Oh, yeah, it's like a rock concert. Look at the lights, you know, right? Now, music is very important to the church. It's a way of expression, right? But if we place all our eggs in the basket of just music, I think what we're doing is that we are missing the problem and we're not addressing the problem. If we have a louder band, it doesn't mean that we're reflecting God's image better. Thank you, (laughs) right? um, If I didn't know what church was and I entered into the church, I would say, oh, the problem with the world is that we didn't have loud enough music about Jesus, right? Or if you thought you went to a church and you're like, wow, the lecture is so good, the teaching is so good, you would think, oh, the problem of the world must be that, that um, we need more teachings about the, what the Bible is saying. Sure, that that's also has a place. There's, that's also important. But if it's not changing us, if it's not, ref, if it's not making us people who reflect the image of God better, then we're missing the point. So I just want to make a few, a, a, another observation about this because this is a story that goes throughout the whole Bible, Okay. Here we go. This, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this. Next slide. The world's brokenness is the church's report card. When we look at the world and we see broken families, we see homelessness, we see racism, and we look up to the skies and say, God, why aren't you fixing this? God would say, well, I have a body down here on earth. Why aren't you doing something about it? when we look at the world and how it's divided, it just might be our fault. When the pandemic struck, I was devastated because the church didn't step up to do what the church was supposed to do. Instead, the church got encouraged division. They argued about who's right and who's wrong and what conspiracy theory we should put our eggs into. The people, when, when the church started playing politics, right? The brokenness of the world is on our shoulders. If the church did what the church was supposed to do, I think the world would be better. And right now what we're doing instead is we're playing the blame game, which by the way, is the exact same thing that happened in, X, in, in Genesis chapter three. God says, what happened here? Adam is like, oh, it's the woman, the woman you gave me. So it's not my fault. It's your fault and her fault. And like, woman, what happened? Well, it's not my fault. It's the serpent that you put here. So it's your fault. And (laughs) we're pointing fingers, right? And we're still doing that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. We haven't learned anything. And we're supposed to be the body of Christ. So when we look at the world and we realize how broken it is, we can't point fingers at anybody but ourselves. Because the world's brokenness is our report card. And we know that sin doesn't stay stagnant. It grows. And I don't know where your political leaning is, okay? And I don't care <laughs> to find out. But, I mean, if you just look at the way that we elect our, our political leaders, we're going to vote this person into office because that person needs power. We need to feel that flame. Yeah, Merry Christmas, right? Yeah. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make here is this, guys that we together, the body of Christ, we, we are the body of Christ. For all of history, God has been looking for a body to put his image in. 
Adam and Eve, Moses, everybody, right? Israelites, and now the church. I want to share with you what Paul the Apostle might think if he were to come to this church, or not this specific church, but the church in general America right now. This is a quote from Romans chapter 12. He's writing a letter to a church, and I think a lot of times we misread this, we misuse this verse, because we like to take this verse and then we think it's all about church, but it's not, it's more than that. Um, There's a church in Rome, and there's a separation between Jews and Gentiles. They just can't mix because their cultures are so different. And so Paul writes this letter to them to let them know, guys, we have to make this work because we are the body of Christ. This is what he says. For just as each of us has one body with many members, it's like, look at your body, right? And these members do not all have the same function, like ears, eyes, mouth, feet, legs, right? They all have different functions. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul here is riffing off of the themes of the Old Testament. It's like, remember how God has been looking for a body? Well, think of like your own body, right? Different parts come together to form one thing, right? Like, you're, this is exactly what God's been doing through your church in Rome. Come on, guys, get on with the program. The church is the body that God has been looking for, right? Then he continues. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Now, when we see the word gifts in a church context, we immediately think spiritual gifts, like, oh, um, because you have this gift with children, you're gonna teach Sunday school. Because you have a gift of playing music, you're gonna be on the worship team, right? We immediately think in the confines of a church. But Paul is here not just talking about the church because back then they didn't have Sunday school or worship team, right? Church was just coming together around a table, eating, breaking bread, right? So he's not talking about gifts in the church. He's talking about gifts in society. Like there's a group of Jews here, and they're like, over here, the way that we do this, we do it this way. Over here, we do this in another way. And they're like, we just can't see eye to eye. He's like, look, your differences are actually gifts. The way you do it, you keep doing it that way. The way you do it, you keep doing that way, and you can still get along with each other. Really? It's like, yeah, here's some examples. If your gift is prophesying, and by the way, prophesying looked very different to Jews than the Greeks and the Romans. The Greeks and Romans, I don't know if you know this, but the way they prophesied in their culture was they would inhale smoke. Basically, they're getting high, and they see visions, and that's how they did it. And you're like, that's my form of prophesying, right? The Jews, they're like, no, 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 no. The way we prophesy is we have these people called prophets, and they pray, and they get visions, and they share it with us. Do you see how they can't get along, right, in the church? And Paul says, you keep doing, if you think your thing is prophesying, you keep doing it, but Get along, guys, right? And by the way, when you prophesy as a Jesus follower, do it for your neighbors and you love, do it, for the, do it for the Jews. And the Jews, when you prophesy, do it for the Gentiles. Do it for one another, right? He doesn't just stop at prophesying. He says, oh no, go back. We're in the middle of that verse. There we go. Um, if it is serving, if your gift is serving, if you're like, God just made me just wanna do stuff for people. Try this, try not just serving for your people, try serving for the other people in your neighborhood that are not like you. Yeah, if it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, remember we're not talking about Sunday school here, we're thinking about context outside the church. If your thing is, I just like to explain things, I like to teach things, I wanna teach people how to read, add, whatever it may be. Consider teaching, not just in your Jewish bubble or just in your Gentile bubble, but do it for one another. These gifts are meant to help one another. So, like, so if that's your gift, then teach. If it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, if your gift is generosity, 
Don't just do it for your circle, your bubble. Do it for everybody, right? If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, guys, you are the body of Christ. Stop acting like this half of the body should be over here and this half of the body should be over there helping out their own side of their bodies. No, 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 no. When you help, when you act out the gifts that God has given you, you're helping one another. And that's how the body of Christ stays together. God has been looking for a body of throughout history and you are it. Now, can you start behaving like it? Why? Why is this important, God? Why is this important, Paul? Because individual sin will always grow into societal sin. And this church, the Roman church, is divided because you think, I'm a part of the Jewish church, I'm a part of the you know, Gentile church. It's like, no, 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 love one another, care for each other, take care of that individual sin of bigotry, take care of that individual sin of, of having negative thoughts about the other group that doesn't look like you, that doesn't behave like you, and love one another. And when you do that, in the same way that sin is always growing into societal sins, your blessing will grow into societal blessings. This is the point, really. When we focus on reflecting God's image to the world, we begin to cease the growth of sin. So, the question again, what is the church? Is it a holy club? Is it a concert hall? Is it a lecture hall? Well, at the very basic level of what a church is, it's this, in people who reflect God's image and care for the world. That's all it is. Is there a place for music? Yes, absolutely. I hope we get to keep singing, right? Is there a place for potlucks? Oh yes, I hope so. Let's bring it back one day, guys, right? Is, is church about teaching? Yes, I hope that, you know, because I need a job, right? I don't know, right? But at the very core, a church is a place where we all transform, become people who love one another. And whoever enters through those doors into this room, or outdoors, wherever you are at home, wherever you are right now, no matter how different that person is, we're gonna commit to loving that person. And it's not gonna happen just like that. Like a person who's different from us walks in through the doors, we're like, we love you, no, no, no. It might take a long time because there's still a little bit of Egypt in all of us, right? It took the Israelites 40 years to rid themselves of the Egypt inside of them. The, the saying that go, goes is like, it, you know, it took a few days to, for, for, Moses to pull the, for, for Moses to pull the slaves out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to pull the Egypt out of the slaves. And I think for us, that's also the same. We can't love people just like that. We have to learn. We're gonna be broken. We have to be healed and all that kind of stuff. But at the very core, a church is basically a group of people who are desperately trying to become more and more an image of God, a reflection of God's image, and care for the world with that love, with that transformation. Amen?